0: All right, it works, look at that. Matthew, should I mute this guy over here? Yeah. Not a problem. No. All right. Now that I don't get to play with a uh, with a string the whole time I preach this morning, I'm not sure what I'm gonna do with my hands. I like that. The uh, mic string was very entertaining for me and it might've been for you as well to see me loop it the entire time. <laughs> well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, open up to Isaiah chapter 11. As we are in the midst of uh, a series called Christmas in Isaiah. And this morning we're going to be looking at our glorious hope in Isaiah chapter 11. Really been enjoying our time in this study. It's just so good to be in the Old Testament and to see the connections to Christ throughout all of our Bibles. And I hope that you have been growing and benefiting in those ways as well. Um, I'm going to start by reading verses 1 through 10, and if I do, let me just pray with you that the Lord will bless the reading of his word. Oh, Father, we thank you that you have, Lord, in your love for us, you have given us your word that we might know you, that we might love you better, or that we might place our hope in you. This morning, I pray by your spirit that you would meet us and that you would allow those realities to be real in our hearts. Amen. This is Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 10. Prophet Isaiah writes, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and of his resting place shall be glorious. <coughs> this is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Well, I recently received an email with the subject line that read, never stop in the middle of a story. When I thought, well, never stop in the middle of an email. So I kept reading. I clicked on that, clicked on the email, and I kept reading. And here's what the the body of the email said. The email said, friend, you shouldn't stop in the middle of a story. Would you ever turn off a movie right in the middle? If you did, then you would stop when the team loses, when the bad guys win. All you kids out there, if if you turn off Lion King in the middle, then Simba is stuck trying to sing his hurt away, and Scar remains king of Pride Rock. Now, I've never seen the Avengers, but I'm going to take his word for it. But if you stop the Avengers in the middle, then Thanos, I hope I pronounced that right, he wins and half of the universe is gone. The email ends. We all know better than to stop in the middle. but in the middle of a story. But sometimes we do that with our own. We see our struggles, our hurts, the circumstances in our life that seem to stay the same. And we decide that this is the end of the story. We think it's just all too much. There's no story behind this. But if we do that, we are stopping too early. And here's the last line of the email. Because our hurt and sin doesn't have the last word. They're not the end. As I read this email, knowing that I was preaching this passage this morning, it hit me that in many ways, the message of this email is the message of our passage before us this morning. It's really the passage, Isaiah's message to his people. He is telling them, don't stop in the middle of your story. Because you'll see leading up to chapter 11 of Isaiah, God has been detailing the judgment that he is going to bring upon Israel for their rebellion. And hearing this message, you can only imagine what their response would be, right? These people are hearing that they are going to be judged. They are going to be sent into exile. The Assyrians are coming. They are going to kick them out of their land. hearing this message, they're going to be afraid. They're going to be discouraged. They're going to be filled with despair, and they will be hopeless. But God doesn't want them to stop there, because that is just the middle of their story. Their story doesn't end with judgment, but as we're going to see this morning, their story ends with a happily ever after. And this was meant to fill them with a great hope. And just like Israel needed this hope, friends, I know that we need this hope too, especially right now. As Marshall touched on, as we've just been so aware of, we are living through the midst of a worldwide pandemic. Racial tensions and political divisions just fill the media, fill the news, and all of this is to say nothing of the sins and the struggles that we deal with on a daily basis. And just like it would have been for the Israelites, it is very easy for you and for me to become discouraged to be filled with despair, to be, to be utterly hopeless, wondering, where's this going to end? But God doesn't want us to stop in the middle of our story because for all who trust in Jesus, our story too ends with a happily ever after. And this is meant to give us a great hope right now. This is a hope that is able to help us right here, right now, as it comforts us, as it gives us peace and contentment, and as it strengthens us to keep going no matter what we are facing. As we unpack our passage this morning, we are going to see two aspects of our hope, two future realities that God wants us to hope in that we might, um, that we might be strengthened right now. We're going to see two things that we are to hope in. The first is God calls us to hope in our coming king. We see this in verses 1 through 5. In verse 1, God begins this message by saying to Israel, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruits." Right out of the gate here, Isaiah offers his readers an amazing word of hope in this image of a shoot, this image of, of a twig that is coming from a stump. You see, earlier in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, God has told the people, when, when judgment comes, you are going to be cut down to a stump. Israel, there's this imagery of a tree throughout throughout the Old Testament in particular. You see this in, in Psalm 1 where, where Israel, where the people were to be this tree that was planted by streams of water that would bear much fruit. But here, because of their sin, because of their rebellion, God tells them He's going to come and He's going to chop them down. They're going to be left with just a stump. But from this stump, Isaiah tells us, hope will come. And it's important that we notice that this isn't just any stump that that hope was going to come from, but it is from the stump of Jesse. Now for you and me, this might not carry that much significance. But for the Israelites, this would have been incredibly significant because this would have communicated to them that this wasn't just the promise of another king who would come, another king who would be just as bad as all of the other kings who had come. But this was a promise that another David was coming, another King David. You see, the Jesse here referred to in this story is Jesse, the father of David, the the greatest king in Israel's history. And so for the readers, this branch of Jesse here, in, in this branch of Jesse, God is promising that from this stump, nothing less... Then the promised future son of David was coming and this future king, this future David, would save his people and would bring God's kingdom to his fullness. This was the greatest longing of all of God's people. This is what they longed for. As we sang, come thou long-expected Jesus, they would have been at home here standing singing with us, come thou promised rod of Jesse. Of thy birth we long to hear. This was their song. They longed for this shoot of Jesse to come, the one who would bring God's kingdom, the one who would bring salvation to his people. And here on this this brink of judgment, God is wanting to comfort and assure their hearts that he is going to keep his promises to them. He is going to bring salvation. And starting in verse 2, we see what this king is like as we see that just like the Spirit rested on David, something unique about David in the Old Testament. This coming king, this coming rod of Jesse, this new David would come and he too would be filled with the Spirit. In verse 2, we see that the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him and filled with the Spirit, this king will be filled with wisdom and understanding, with counsel and might, with knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And this spirit, being filled with the spirit, it would profoundly impact how he would rule, which we see starting in verse 3. Verse 3 of this king's rule, it says that he shall delight in the fear of the Lord. Rather than trusting in himself and doing things in his own way for his own benefit like so many of Israel's kings did, this king, out of his love and his trust in God, will respond in faith and obedience to God's word. He will will be faithful when all the other kings were not. And this is seen most clearly in the way that this king carries out his royal office as judge. Look with me in verse, in verse 3, uh, Isaiah describing this king says, He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. This coming king will not be like all of the other kings of Israel who loved bribes, who, who failed to bring justice for the fatherless And the widows. No, this king is going to come, and just as Marshall prayed earlier, this this coming king here is going to judge the people with righteousness and equity, in obedience to God's word. He is going to care and treat the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. With equity. He is, he's not going to show favor to them, but he will honor the image of God in there. He will honor God's word by hearing their cases and judging with equity, whereas these previous kings failed to even hear the plight of the poor. In verse 5 here summarizes nicely what this king will be like when, when God tells us that righteousness will be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his moins. Throughout the Bible clothing is used as a symbol, it is, it's used as a, a picture that expresses the character of the person, it, it tells us what they're like, it shows us what is important to them and here the idea of a belt symbolizes that this coming king here, he is ready for action and that righteousness and faithfulness will characterize all of his works. As Isaiah, as Israel was on the brink of judgment, as exile was coming, God wanted them to first hear this message of hope, that they were to hope in their coming king, this new David who would be faithful to God's word and bring God's kingdom. And as we turn to verse 6, we see that secondly, God calls his people, he calls us, to hope in the coming kingdom. You see, starting in verse 6, Isaiah abruptly turns his attention from our coming king to the coming kingdom. And the picture that he paints here is nothing less than astounding because the picture that we see here in verses 6 through 10 is the picture of a restored Eden. As we look at each of these verses, here are the connections with the Garden of Eden from Genesis 1 and 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 Genesis and Genesis 2. Here in verse 6, the first thing he tells us is that the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. In this coming kingdom, peace will reign. Old hostilities are reconciled. Here we see that the animals will no longer relate to one another as predator and prey, living life, eating, and being eaten. But instead, they will live together in peace and harmony, just like we see in Genesis 1, and 22. now at this point i think we have to answer a very significant theological question and that is is this passage proof that all dogs go to heaven when they die will there be animals in heaven well first of all i can't say for sure whether all dogs go to heaven and just to be a little honest i do personally have mixed feelings at the thought of spending eternity with Calvin, my little worker, I, just to be honest, I'm not sure how that sits with me. Um, I'm just kidding. I love my dog. Eternity with him would be just fine. But, uh, but to get back to our question here in this passage, the animals in the new heavens and the new earth, while we can't say for sure, this passage and others do seem to suggest that there will be animals in heaven they were in the original creation so the question is why would they be in the new creation to minor point if you have any questions tab we'll answer all of them (laughs) so first here in verse six with this coming kingdom we see that this coming kingdom is going to be one of restored peace And in verse 7, we see this connection with the Garden of Eden made even stronger as we see that the the creation order itself is being restored as the very nature of these animals is changed. You see, no longer will these animals eat meat, but the creation order itself will be restored as all the animals will once again be herbivores. See that there in verse 7, it says that the cow and the bear shall graze. The lion will eat straw like the ox. Just like in Genesis 1 and 2, in this coming kingdom, the animals will eat only from the fruits of the ground. And if this picture hasn't been good enough, in this coming kingdom, this is the picture of this coming kingdom, it comes to a climax in verse 8 as isaiah shows us that in this coming kingdom the curse itself will be removed the curse will be broken he writes the nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra and and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den these two images of children and snakes Um, together in peace, wasn't chosen randomly. Isaiah wasn't just pulling random pictures from his mind, but he chooses these pictures of children and snakes very intentionally. Because you see, back in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve eat the fruits, they receive God's consequences for rebelling against his word, what we call the curses. And at the heart of God's curse on the woman... Is that there would be conflict between her seed, that's between her children, and between the snake, or between the serpents. And this is a theme that we see carried throughout the whole Bible. This enmity, this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the snakes, with this imagery of snakes. But here in this coming kingdom that this king will bring, there will be no conflict, there will be no enemy. Now the baby will play around snake holes. Toddlers will stick their hands in their nests with nothing to fear. Because in the kingdom that this king brings, the curse of sin will be removed. Verse 9 summarizes all that we have just heard. Where God says that they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We don't want to read over that last phrase too quickly. This is a a phrase that is repeated throughout the Old Testament. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That phrase right there is referring to the culmination of salvation history. In this phrase, God is saying that his presence will fill the entire earth. No longer is God's presence going to be going to be um, only on a mountain in the temple, as it says, or, um, as it was in the Old Testament in Jerusalem. But God's presence, or but what He's saying here is that the whole earth is going to be God's holy mountain because God's presence is going to fill the entire earth. In this restored Eden, everyone will personally and intimately know the Lord, experiencing life to its fullness, life as it was created to be lived, as we will live life in the presence of the Lord. Bringing all of this passage to a close. In verse 10, Isaiah shows us that this coming king, this root of Jesse, connecting it here with verse one, he will be a signal, he will be a banner rallying all the na- all the rallying together people from every nation to be with him in his kingdom, what he calls his glorious resting place. And as they come, people from every nation, they will finally be where they belong, they will be finally home. This this here in Isaiah 1 through 10 is God's message of hope to his people. This is the end of their story. They're happily ever after as the king has come, as he has brought his kingdom, and as his people are living in his presence. This is the happily ever after that God is promising his people. It's quite a vision. Now, before we unpack how this can how we can apply this to our lives, how it can help us, I do think that it's important for all of us to see that while Israel received this promise and looked forward in hope to this King's coming, today for you and me, on this side of Christmas, we know who this coming king is. Because he has already come in the person of Jesus. Over 2,000 years ago, in the little town of Bethlehem, God began the fulfillment of this promise uh, this promise to Israel as Jesus, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, was born. He was filled with the Spirit, and in his life, death, and resurrection, he initiated God's kingdom here on earth, bringing peace and breaking the curse in the lives of all those who trust in him. So while we are waiting for our coming king and the kingdom, in a sense, we are just like Israel, still waiting for this king to come again, still waiting for him to bring his kingdom in its fullness. We are waiting differently because the king has already come and it's important that we see this because this is the foundation. This is the heart of our hope. You see, oftentimes today when we use the word hope, we, we generally use it in the sense of just wishful thinking, right, like, oh, I hope I get this for Christmas, or I hope this works out, or I hope my team wins, or my team signs this player, or that player. It's, it's, it's just expressing what our desire is, something that we want to happen with no guarantee that it will happen. Thinking about this, it reminded me of um, the, when I used to work at uh, the job I worked in before I came on staff here at the church, I, I worked in, in aerospace and, and every week we would have a meeting with, a, with the director of supply chain. I was, I was a buyer and so we'd have a meeting every week with the director of supply chain. That is my boss's boss's boss. And in this meeting, we would have to give updates on where our parts were to make sure that we weren't gonna stop the assembly lines, to make sure that we weren't gonna stop them from being able to continue building uh, these nacelles. There were things that go around the engines uh, on the plane. And so these were always very intimidating meetings because if you were having to talk in one of these meetings, it was because one of your suppliers was not shipping parts when they were supposed to. So there was was already some, some stress and some pressure On these meetings and in these meetings here we were forbidden from saying the word hope in fact on the wall at the front of this conference meeting there was a there was a banner that said hope is not a solution (laughs) you know because we could hope all day that our suppliers were going to ship their parts but that hope was going to do absolutely nothing to have our suppliers actually ship them and get them to the assembly place. it just meant nothing But that's not how the Bible uses the word hope. For Isaiah and for all the other biblical writers, hope is the solution. In fact, hope is the only solution because as we see here in Isaiah chapter 11, hope is a person. Jesus, our coming king, he is our hope. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1 says that Christ, our hope, he is our hope. And, in Hebrews 6, we have our, our First Peter 1, we have our living hope. Our hope is a person and he is the solution. You see, on this side of Christmas, we're not crossing our fingers hoping that this king is going to come. Because we have absolute assurance that this king will come. In fact, we have blood-bought assurance that guarantees us that Jesus, who came for the first time, who died a bloody, sacrificial death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and rebellion, to restore us to a relationship with him, he will come again to fulfill his task of restoring all things to himself when he brings his kingdom in its fullness, what the Apostle John calls the new heavens, in the new earth in the book of Revelation so with all this in mind with this in mind that we are a people awaiting a coming king and a coming kingdom but we are people who are waiting knowing that this king has already come let's consider how this hope can help us right now and if you're a note taker just write this one down the message, this message of hope in Isaiah chapter 11 it helps us right now by giving us perspective so that we can persevere. This hope in Isaiah chapter 11, this hope of a coming king, of a coming kingdom, it helps us right here, right now, by giving us the right perspective so that we can persevere. See, for each and every one of us here, as we live life in this fallen world, we need this hope to give us an eternal perspective that will enable us to persevere, to get through the suffering and the struggles that we all experience in this life, that we all experience even right now. So just think with me first about how this, about how this hope helps you persevere through suffering. As I mentioned at the beginning of, of my sermon here, we all know better than, than just stop in the middle of a story And yet, so often we do this with our own stories. And it seems that we especially are tempted to stop in the middle of our stories when suffering has played a major part in our narrative. As we are aware of the hurt and the pain, we decide that this is just the end of our story, that there is absolutely nothing beyond this. But our hope, the hope of Isaiah 11, it helps us by assuring us that suffering doesn't have the last word. Suffering is not the end of our story because our story doesn't end with a chapter on suffering. It ends with a never-ending chapter of joy as we live life in God's presence. In the coming kingdom, there will be no suffering. In Revelation 21, we are told that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This hope here points us forward to the glorious day when everything sad will come untrue as Samwise Ganges puts it. You see, because on this day when our king comes, when he brings his kingdom, our bodies will be renewed. There will be no more cancer, no more tumors, no more neurological defects or chemical imbalances. We'll never experience depression or, or, uh, or anxiety again. Death, disease, and disorder will be completely wiped out. And in their place, we will experience eternal life in God's kingdom where we'll enjoy the greatest happiness imaginable, communion with our triune God and with one another. One Christian therapist puts it, he said, It is the promise of eternal joy in the presence of God that makes the Christian explanation for for the problem of suffering work. You're already saying there, it's this this promise of joy forevermore, eternal, unending joy in the presence of God. It is, it is the promise that we have of that, the hope that we have of this unending joy in God's presence that enables us to make sense, to reconcile our experiences and the stories of suffering that each and every one of us have. I was writing my sermon, and even right now, I, I'm, I'm very aware about how insensitive that might sound. Especially since I have never experienced significant suffering like I know many of you have. I just think of our, of our dear friends, our dear brothers and sisters, the Sperrys, the Bradets, the Richards, the Mulries. And I'm sure I'm leaving some of you out. In saying that we have this glorious hope of this coming kingdom where we will experience eternal happiness with God, in no way am I trying to minimize your current experience of suffering. But but my desire, I think God's desire for us in Isaiah chapter 11 is that this this hope would maximize our desire for heaven by showing us that suffering doesn't have the last word but hope as the last word. So in light of this, with this hope, we can reframe, we can reinterpret our suffering in light of eternity, in light of eternity in the presence of our infinite God. This is exactly what we see Paul doing in Romans 8 when he says that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. In light of this glory of this coming king and this coming kingdom, what we see in Isaiah 11, Paul says that his sufferings were not even worth comparing to the hope that he had. Again, it's not to minimize suffering, but it's to maximize our desire for heaven. Many of you are familiar with the. With, uh, with uh, Johnny Erickson Todd, the, the Christian author and the speaker who, after a diving accident, left her paralyzed at the age of 17. She's experienced great suffering every day for the last 53 years. Every day of her life is a, is a story filled with suffering. And she makes this exact point about the glory that is awaiting us, not comparing to the suffering in her book, Heaven. Here here what she writes, and keep in mind, this is a woman who has daily suffered, 53 years. She writes, suffering makes us want to go to heaven. Broken homes and broken hearts crush our illusions that earth can keep its promises, that it can really satisfy. Our only hope, only the hope of heaven can truly satisfy our passions for this world, which God knows which God knows could never fulfill us anyways, and place them where they will find their glorious fulfillment. Here she's saying there, she's saying that it's the hope of heaven that enables her to experience this suffering, to go through this suffering, and it's the experience of suffering itself that increases and heightens her desire for this hope, this desire to go to heaven. And this is exactly what God desires our experiences of suffering to do. To increase our hope for heaven, to to cry out all the more, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. And, and and I don't want to be overly prescriptive here, but I think one helpful practice for each of us, as we desire to grow here, is we want to to grow in being more aware of this hope that we have. And it's a, it's a helpful practice that I think can can help us in the midst of current suffering, or it can help us to prepare for suffering that we know will come is for each of us to cultivate a habit of meditating on the prospect of finally being with Christ, to to cultivate a habit, to to meditate on the reality and the promise and the hope that we have that one day Christ will come and we will be with him. And as we do this, as we, we continue to meditate and to look forward to and to hope in this coming kingdom, this time where we will be with Christ, we will develop what one, what one author calls a forward-tilted life where the eyes of our hearts are fixed on our ultimate destination. It's not going to remove our suffering, but this forward-tilted life will enable us to have an eternal perspective so that we can keep going because we know that suffering is not the end of our story, but eternal happiness and joy in the presence of God is the end of our story. That's one way it can help us in our suffering. And just briefly, second, I just want to hit on how this can help us in our struggles. Because I think one of the, the main assaults on our hope, in addition to the presence of suffering in our stories, is the simple idea that can just so easily infiltrate our thinking. And that is the idea that things are never going to change or get better when we're convinced that our circumstances or our relationships or our struggling with sin will never change or get better, we can quickly become filled with hopelessness and despair. I just want to ask this morning, where are you aware of this hopelessness or despair in your own life? Where, where do you find that you are tempted towards hopelessness in these ways? Is it connected with the pandemic or perhaps the, the state of our politics? Maybe it's as you take a step back and look at your life circumstances when maybe you're convinced that your your relationship status will never change, or you're never going to get that dream job or that promotion. Or maybe you're just convinced that you're never gonna get into that school or that program of your dreams. Maybe for you, it's it's, it's <laughs> you know, as you look at your, your financial prospects, you, you're just convinced your financial prospects are, are, are never going, to improve, and the life you've always dreamed of living just is never going to be a reality. Or maybe the the dark cloud of hopelessness and despair settles down on you when you think about your relationships, whether it be in your marriage, in your parenting, or in your friendships. Just how often have you thought to yourself that this person will never change? Or how many times have you found yourself in the midst of a conflict and just thought to yourself or said out loud how many times have we gone through this do we have to have this argument again are things ever going to get better as we as we become convinced that things are never going to change hopelessness and despair can set in maybe it's as you consider your struggles whether it's with sin or any of the struggles of just living in a fallen world is that when hopelessness kicks in for you Maybe you, you give in to the temptation to sin again and you say to yourself, I am just never going to be able to stop this. I am never going to be able to get past this, to move past this. Where are you feeling hopeless and despair right now? I think for us, I think the message for each and every one of us in the midst of these temptations towards hopelessness and despair is to remember that just like suffering is not the end of our story, life in a fallen world and struggling is not the end of our story as well. Because no matter how much our life circumstances don't live up to our hopes or dreams, no matter how much our relationships or lack thereof are a struggle of disappointment and frustration for us, No matter how much our struggles in this life weigh us down, Isaiah 11 is promising us that there is another chapter in our story titled, God Makes All Things New. Because God, because when King Jesus returns, when he brings his kingdom, we will be ushered into the greatest happiness imaginable because we will be with God. We will finally become like him. We will be changed. Again, just like with our suffering, the, the promise of this other chapter in our story, of this coming chapter in our story, it doesn't take the struggling away. It doesn't take the difficulty, the pain, and the sting away, but it does give us a hope. It does enable us to persevere, to keep going, as we know that whatever struggle or difficulty we are walking through right now, it is not the end of our story. But we have the promise of a coming king and a coming kingdom. And with that hope, we can keep going. We can be comforted. We can have peace. We can find contentment in the midst of our life circumstances right now, knowing that one day it gets better. We have the promise that it gets better. And as we do this, God will meet us. So our King has come, and our King is coming again. This is the glorious hope that Christmas promises us. And this is the hope that is able to help us right now, as it reminds us that we are only in the middle of our story, and the ending is better than anything we dared imagine. Well, as we close our service this morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, a gift that God has given to us to remind us of this future hope because as we receive the bread and the cup we are viscerally reminded that one day that we're viscerally reminded that one day we will have resurrected bodies free of suffering and we will sit at the table with christ we will be completely changed in his presence as all things are made new Does the ushers prepare to get ready as Scott and and Grace come down? I just want to invite each and every one of you to take a moment to respond to God. To ask the Lord, where do you need to hear and to apply this hope in your life right now? Where is the area of hopelessness or despair or difficulty for you right now? And in that moment, apply this hope. Let the reality that there is a future chapter coming minister. To your soul. thank you that in the midst of our suffering and in our struggling, we have great hope that enables us to persevere, that enables us to keep going as we know the end of our story. We know that you are the end of our story and eternal joy and happiness with you is what is awaiting. And so we ask, Lord, that you would come, and we pray that you would come quickly, And by your Spirit, enable us to continue to grow more and more, desiring of this hope. Amen.